All right, good morning, fam. Uh, I am not Derek. Uh, he's a little taller, beard's a little longer. Other than that, we're almost the exact same. Um, but he is out. He's out of town this week. I get to fill in, uh, and it's, I'm glad to be here, honestly. But this is not normally what I do, so don't judge me too harshly on this, okay? Normally, I'm in the back, like, filling out a spreadsheet while Derek's up here preaching. That's what my, my job is. I'm the operations pastor here. Uh, we have been in a sermon series called Deconstruction. Uh, if you've been with us the last few weeks, uh, you, we have walked through some pretty big topics. Uh, Derek, two weeks ago, addressed women in ministry. Last week, he addressed sexuality. Uh, so, I mean, when you follow up those two, you really can't go wrong, right? Like, whatever I say today, you're probably like, hey, that's not too bad, right? There's nothing really controversial about asking you as people who are in a church to believe the Bible, right? That's today what we're going to kind of get into uh, when we talked about all of those weeks, we walked through everything in deconstruction, all the questions. Every single week, we went back to the Bible. Every week, we sought the Bible. What does the Bible say about this? How does it address it? How should we live in light of what the Bible says? And the reason we do that is because we think the Bible is authoritative, right? It gives us direction and tells us how we should think, how we should believe, how we should live in every area and aspect of our life. That's what we think, right? But the question today that we're asking is, why? Why do you think that? Right? And that's a big topic. It's a little unlike every other sermon we've done in this series. Because like I said, every other sermon, Derek has gone back and he's addressed the scripture. Like this is what the Bible says. Today, we're going to take a step back. What is it that we believe about the Bible? Why do we believe it about the Bible? And is there any good evidence at all that would support it? Okay? Those are big questions. It's a lot to address. I'm not, I promise you, when we talk about the sermon series ending with the Bible, we probably could have began with this one, but since we're ending it, here's a good reason why. Because most likely what happened in this sermon series is you did not get answers to your questions. Maybe your question didn't get addressed. Maybe the thing that you're wrestling with, you're struggling with, it didn't show up in the sermon series, and so now you're kind of left with like, well, what do I do now, right? Today is about you believing that the Bible is the word of God. It is authoritative and trustworthy for every aspect of your spiritual life, okay? That's what I wanted. So if you're here today and you're a Christian, hopefully what I'm gonna teach you are some things that you can hang your hat on. Here's what we believe about the Bible. And at the very end, I wanna get into two big pieces of evidence that why we believe the Bible can be ascribed as authoritative and inspired word of God, okay? We're gonna look at some questions, some big questions that I've, that I've worked through, okay? Now, this week in my, in my research and dealing with everything, what I came through was I, I read a lot of articles by, by some scholars and stuff, guys who are not believers, they're not Christians, and there's a couple things that, I, that showed up in their writings and they're things that I think we need to address, okay? So two points of preface before we get into anything else. Number one, okay, one of the things that showed up in a lot of my readings and a lot of, a lot of the, the, the articles that I was reading were the fact that people were pointing to the fact that the Bible had been used to commit any number of atrocities in the course of history. That they have looked to the Bible and found support for whatever it was that they did and committed. We've seen this in our own time. You've seen guys who have like gone into a Waffle House and shot it up and said, oh, God told me to do so, and I read this Bible verse, right? A lot of people use that type of evidence as reason why, well, this is why we can't believe in the Bible as being the word of God, okay? So a couple things I want you to write down off the bat. If you don't, if you don't have a pen, 
pull out, a, pull out your phone, take a picture, it's going to be on the screen, okay? So first things first, the ontological nature of an object is not defined by its capacity for both good or evil, okay? That's a lot of words, but let me, let me break that down for just a moment. What that means is, is that we can't negate or can't say that the Bible is not true based on the fact that somebody has used it to do bad things, which has happened. We need to admit that. Offhand, you have to admit this. The Bible has been used as a support and foundation for numerous wars. It's been used as a support and foundation for the institution of slavery. I have even heard people argue that using the Bible as support for why women should stay in physically abusive marriages. It has been used to do bad things in people's lives. We have to admit it. But in the same way that you can't turn around and say that the Bible's not true because of the bad things that have been done in its name, you can't say that the Bible is true because good things have been done in its name, right? This is what we're saying. You can't determine whether or not the Bible is true based on what, if it's been used for bad or good, okay? Let's just lay the groundwork there. Number one, that argument showed up quite a bit. I want to address it now, so there's there, Okay? Number two, there is no amount of evidence I can give you today that will overcome an already made up mind. If your mind is already made up on this topic, there is nothing I can say that will convince you otherwise, okay? This showed up a lot in my research, and I was looking through when you would see these scholars and they would write, well, here's, so what about this, and what about this, and what about this? They would ask these questions, and they're great questions. I, I, oftentimes, we talk about deconstruction Historically, sometimes the church has not always responded well to people asking good, hard questions, right? These are great questions, and they, and they could be answered. But what most oftentimes happens is they find one thing that's a little difficult to answer, and they use that as evidence for why the Bible's not true, mainly because that's where they've already decided they're at, right? I don't have to dig any further here this thing that's confusing now, I'm just going to use that as support for my evidence for why I already believe what I believe. Okay? There's absolutely no amount of evidence I can give you today to overcome an already made up mind. But uh, my pastor, J.D. Greer, Summit Church, North Carolina, had a great illustration one time. I'm going to steal it from him right here. He was talking to a girl who was really struggling with the idea of the Trinity, right? A great question because literally people have been talking about it for centuries and centuries, and no one's really going to ever have a great answer that just answers everybody's questions about it, okay? Her struggle was with the Trinity. I don't understand, okay? And so J.D. looks at her, and, he's, and in this conversation, he says, that's great, that's fine. What if I told you, what if Jesus showed up right here in this moment, and he told you there was an answer for your question, but that you couldn't understand it right now? Would you believe? Would you doubt your doubts long enough to believe? And I'm, the same thing I'm going to ask you today. There are going to be questions about the Bible that you may not get answers to. There will be questions, and they're great questions, and there's nothing wrong with asking these questions. Right? I always want to say that out loud. There's nothing wrong with asking questions about how, why is this included in the Bible? Why is this not included in the Bible? How can we believe this? That's great. Those are all good questions, and we can come to the Scripture, and we can ask those. But if your mind is already made up, on I'm not going to believe it, there's nothing I can say today that will convince you otherwise, okay? So that's my two points of preference. Now let's get into it, okay? 
In 1803, where you just, that just threw everybody for a loop. You're like, what just happened? So we're jumping back in time a little bit. 1803, Thomas Jefferson doubles the size of the United States through the Louisiana Purchase. He purchases most of the Midwest Territory west of the Mississippi, stretching from the northeast side of Texas all the way through the kind of the southwest side of Wyoming. Okay? So 1803, he doubles the size of the U.S. And in 1804, he commissions Lewis and Clark to go and explore this new territory. But it tells them, keep going, because we want to know what's all out there. So Lewis and Clark do. They go out there with the help of Sacagawea. They get out there. They find the Oregon Territory. And they come all the way back, and they, and they talk about everything they've seen. And this is all the evidence that the U.S. needs. They're like, great, we need to start expanding. There's all this space. We need to start moving. The only problem is, even though Lewis and Clark had come back and said all of this stuff is out here, nobody begins to move. Right? So they, get, they finished their expedition in 1806. Nobody's moving out that way. So they figure out why, or they, they have a theory about why. So in the 1840s, in steps a man by the name of John Fremont. John Fremont was a gifted young topographer. Uh, he was the son-in-law of Senator Thomas Benton out of Arkansas. You, you probably didn't need that. That's just me. I'm weird. Um, and so what happens is Thomas Benton, or John, John Fremont, Thomas Benton, John Fremont, has been commissioned by the U.S. to go and map out the West. He's a topographer, so they want to know, where is this mountain range? How many days of travel is this? What direction do we have to travel? All of this stuff. So John Fremont's going to go on this expedition. He goes on five or six expeditions, and most of them are pretty incredible. But before this very first one, he stands on the east side or the west side of Arkansas, looking out into the wilderness and has no idea what to do. He's not a wilderness guy. He's a scientist. He's a topographer. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do. What do I do if I get out here and, and, and I get attacked by, you know, of course, at this time, the U.S. is property of France and Britain and Spain and Mexico and the Native American. I mean, there's, there's all these countries who were here at the time, right? So what do I do? So he looks to a man by the name of Christopher Kit Carson, who was a young frontiersman. who was a gifted fur trapper, a scout, uh, a tracker, Served in the military. He was, this, this, guy, this guy was the guy, and I love him because he was short and rode a mule, right? He was, a, he, was a, he was gifted. And so Fremont needs Kit Carson to lead him out into the West and then bring him back. And it happens. He goes on this expedition. Guys, he goes on this expedition and comes back, and nobody died, which is incredible in the 1840s. Because Carson was a pretty gifted guy at what he was doing. As a matter of fact, Fremont would go on a fourth expedition, which Kit Carson didn't go with him, and almost all of his men would die of hypothermia because he got them stuck in the mountains of Colorado. But Kit Carson proved his worth. He needed a guy. The point of telling you all that story is like Derek said in the very first sermon on deconstruction, that deconstruction is kind of like this wilderness. It's like a desert that we're standing on the edge of. And we have great questions of the Bible, great questions about God, great questions about Jesus, but I don't know what to do. Where do I turn to get my questions answered? And a lot of us don't want to look at the Bible. Today, my encouragement is, is that the Bible is the guide that is meant to lead you into the promised land. It will not answer every single one of your questions. It does not condescend to every single question that everybody asked. That's not what it was the purpose of it. It's not, it's not its purpose, right? But as we stand here today, oftentimes most of us are looking to what are our friends saying? What is the latest TED Talk? 
What's the latest podcast I've listened to? What does society as a whole, how, what, is, what does my governor say? What do the politics say of the day? They'll, I'll let them help me determine my, my big ideas on where I stand on a lot of social civil issues. Instead of looking to Scripture, today I want you to be convinced that the Bible is what you could be looking at. It will lead you through that wilderness. And it may not answer every question, but it will get you to where you want to go. I promise you, if you'll listen to it and we'll follow it. Okay? So that's where we're at. Just jump like three pages of notes. Boom, we're good. So with that being said, we're going to get into, I'm gonna, the first thing I want to talk about is what is the Bible? What have Christians historically believed about the Bible? And then I'm going to answer two big questions that maybe you have asked or someone's asked you or you've heard as people talking about what, why, why does the Bible do this, Okay. So first things first, what is the Bible? It may surprise you to actually know this, that the three major world religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, all believe that the Bible is a sacred text, at least in part or in whole. Okay, All three of them agree that the Bible is a sacred text. So what is it? The Bible is 66 books written by over 35 different authors divided into two different testaments. The word testament is literally just a fancy way of saying covenant. So oftentimes you may hear theologians talk about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. They're oftentimes talking about theology find found in the Old Testament versus theology found in the New Testament. Old Covenant, New Covenant. It's divided into two different testaments with one simple message. That message and the theme of all of Scripture is God's redemptive work among mankind centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. 66 books over 35 authors in two testaments with one simple message, Jesus. Okay, He is the theme throughout the entire thing. So that's the, the basic, basic understanding. What is the Bible? When you hold that book in your hand, that's what you're holding. Okay. So what I want to talk about now are what are the things that theologians or Christian scholars have typically held about the Bible? Okay? There are three I's, three I words. So you want to write these down. I'm going to quiz you next week, and if you don't know this, I'm going to be mad, okay? Three eyes about the Bible, three things we believe. The Bible is inspired, the Bible is inerrant, and the Bible is infallible. Inspired, inerrant, and infallible. I'm going to walk through, and I'm going to explain all of these things and what they mean, but make sure you know it, because I would be really disappointed and hurt if you didn't listen to me. Okay, what is Inspiration. Inspiration is a little, can be a little difficult to talk about or a little bit to understand because it gets used in a couple different ways, right? So you walk into, here's a great example. Recently, Taylor Swift was at, at the stadium, right? There are a lot of people who went to that concert and walked away. They're like, oh, I was inspired. Inspired to go and pick up a guitar and learn to sing, right? Maybe. I went to, you go to a museum, you see a piece of artwork, you see a, a sculpture, and it can inspire you. Right? I listen to a piece of music, whatever it may be, and I'm inspired. Right? Most oftentimes when people talk about being inspired, we're talking about some emotion that has been stirred within me, some experience or feeling of transcendence that has been brought on me because of whatever it is I'm beholding. Right? So I feel inspired. And, that, and that's not wrong. It's just one way of using it. It's not the way we're using it today. That's why this is important for us to find it. Okay? So let me say this. When I'm talking about the Bible, when I say that the Bible is inspired, I'm not talking about an emotion that it makes you feel. Okay? 
The Bible is not the word of God because it makes you feel a certain way. The Bible is inspired, and when we say that, we're talking qualitatively that it is the word of God inspired. The words in itself are inspired words. Okay? So here's how we're going to define inspiration. This is the definition. Again, it's a little long. You may want to take a picture. Okay? So inspiration is the supernatural influence of the Holy Spirit upon divinely chosen agents in consequence of which their writings become trustworthy and authoritative. It's a little long. Like I said, you may want to take a picture. I'm trying to write it down. Essentially, though, what we're saying is that inspiration is the process in which God inspires the authors to write down their work and their work also being authoritative, trustworthy and authoritative, okay? When we say inspired, we're literally saying that these are the direct words from God, okay? Here's the verse that Christians use when we talk about being inspired. This is the verse. We just read it a minute ago. All scripture, this is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. The term there, inspired, is actually the Greek term theophnustos. Okay? Theophnustos is not just one word. It's actually two words that have been slapped together. Okay? You had the first, the, the second half of that word is the word, the Greek word pneuma. Pneuma can be translated wind. It can be translated as soul or spirit. Uh, as an example, this is John chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus says, truly, I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, that is pneuma, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That word can also be translated as breath, as in 2 Thessalonians 2, 8, where it says the Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing at the appearance of his coming. Okay, so the, the term pneuma, soul, spirit, wind, or breath. The beginning of that word is the Greek term theos, which typically refers to God, big G God, or little God, like little G God, if you know the difference of those, right? Big G God, we're talking about God the Father, little G God, oftentimes you'll see like Paul writes uh, that you are worshiping these gods, that's the little G God, okay? So that term, the same term is used to describe both of those. So what that word is describing is that the words of Scripture, all Scripture is literally breathed out from God. Spirated is the term. Breathed out by God. So again, we see this idea of Scripture as being completely from Him, originating in Him. Sorry. Yeah, here we go. I did. I flipped over two pages. The Bible claims to have its origin in God. But this brings up another question that I'm sure you're asking now. Okay? If the Bible is inspired by God and it had its origin in him, then how did we get it? Okay? What was the process in which it was written down? How do we know that what they actually wrote down came from God? And what was the process in which God spoke to them? I'm going to be honest with you right here off the bat. We don't know. No one knows. We weren't there. I didn't get to witness it. We have no idea why Matthew wrote down what Matthew wrote down, why Paul wrote down what Paul, what Paul wrote down, why Moses wrote down exactly what Moses wrote down. We can't tell you that. There are two things I can tell you that we don't believe, and I'll tell you why. Number one, what we don't believe is we don't believe that Moses, like, one day sat down at a desk to write a letter to his sister, and his eyes rolled in the back of his head, and he woke up two days later, and he had the five books of the law, and he's like, oh, these must be from God. 
We don't believe that happened, right? We also don't believe what's called dictation theory, that Moses just walked around and just God just audibly spoke to him the whole time and he just wrote down word for word for word exactly what God was saying. The reason we don't believe that is because there's too much evidence in the original writings of the author's own personal flavor, the way that they spoke, the way that they write, how they saw certain things. You can see it from book to book to book that each author is unique in its own way, right? So if everything, if we had the dictation theory or if God just uh, you know, came over and possessed the person and they wrote down exactly what it was, you would, you would expect to have consistency throughout the whole thing, but we don't. We are able to see the individual authors, the way that they, they write, the way that they think and how they describe things, Okay. So what we believe, though, is that the Holy Spirit worked through, God the Father worked through the Holy Spirit to inspire the authors and that what they wrote down became authoritative and trustworthy, okay? So the Bible, we believe, is inspired. The second thing, inerrancy. We believe that the Bible is not inspired, it's also inerrant. Inerrancy means without error. Now, unlike inspiration, we just read the word inspired in Scripture, Inerrancy and infallibility, neither of them show up in the text, okay? Both of them flow from what we believe about who God is. Our doctrine and our understanding of Scripture flow out of God's nature that we have, that we believe, right? So if God is trustworthy, then so too is the Bible, trustworthy. If God is incapable of lying, then so too must the Scripture also not have any lies. It must be true. Okay, this is a theological term that's used to describe the scripture based on the nature and character of God himself, okay? So the question you might be asking, if God used human authors and we know that humans are fallen because of the sin, how, did we, how can we guarantee that none of their humanness made its way into the scripture, making it not true? So in 2 Peter, another big verse that we like to quote as far as when we talk about the scripture, the doctrine of scripture, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, it says, above all, you know this, that no prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried by the Holy Spirit. Okay? So again, we have this idea, divine inspiration, Scripture, prophecy, these things flow from God, happens through the Holy Spirit. That doesn't really answer the question, except for, we believe that God, we just mentioned that God is true, but later on, if you look at John chapter 15, verse 26, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is described as the Spirit of truth, okay? So, and I know that like what I'm doing right now is I'm tying a bunch of Bible verses together, and today, if you were like, well, this kind of seems like circular reasoning and circular logic, it is a little bit. But what I'm not going to use this for as evidence is why we think the Bible is authoritative. What I'm specifically doing right now is I'm allowing the Bible to take the stand in its own testimony. It's telling you what it is. And then in a moment, we'll kind of get into, can we actually believe that or trust that? Okay? So it's a little, you might think like, I just wanted to catch you now. If you're like, eh, this is all circular reasoning. I got you. I know. It's coming. Okay? So the Bible is inspired and the Bible is inerrant. And what we mean by that is there's a great definition. The great definition of inerrancy comes from Paul Feinberg, not Feinbaum, okay? If you're a football fan, this is not Paul Feinbaum. Paul Feinberg, this is what he writes. He says, when all the facts are known, the scriptures in their original autographs and properly interpreted 
will be shown to be wholly true in everything they affirm, whether that has to do with doctrine or morality or with social, physical, or life sciences. Okay? Now, we're going to get into this more in just a minute, but I want to make a quick note here that inerrancy in our definition does strictly apply to the original autographs, but would also extend to every copy of Scripture, what you hold in your hand, so long as it faithfully is, is faithfully a copy of the original. Now, we're going to get into that question at the end. That's one of the ones we're going to talk about, right? How do you know that your Bible is accurate, right? We're going to get into that. But that's the definition of inerrancy. So there's a famous story about a monk. You know, monks used to sit down, and they would write, and they'd go to these rooms, and they would just copy Scripture after Scripture after Scripture. They would do this all day, over and over and over again. There's this famous story of this monk who one time accidentally switched two letters and changed the whole meaning of a verse, okay? He accidentally switched the, the letters N and O in the words no, right? So in, in the story of the woman caught in adultery who comes to Jesus, Jesus in this monk's version says, go and sin on more and not no more. Obviously, then we know that that copy is not inerrant. It has an error, right? It has an, an issue with the, the way that the, it was transcribed, the way it was copied down, okay? Augustine would say the same thing. If you don't know who Augustine is, Augustine is an early church father. And here in a letter of him writing to Jerome, who was an early church historian, uh, this is letter 82. They wrote a lot. Um, so in, in letter 82 to Jerome, this is what Augustine says. He says, if anything in these writings I am perplexed by, if there's anything in the writings which I'm perplexed by, anything which appears to me to be opposed to the truth, I do not hesitate to suppose that either the manuscript is faulty the translator has not caught the full meaning of what was said, or I myself have failed to understand it, okay? Our doctrine of inerrancy would mean that at no point in the Bible is there something that is there an error. If, you, if we get to a spot in our reading and I cannot make sense of it, or I think it's wrong, most likely it will come down to the fact that I am not able to understand or I've not come up to the right answer, right? This is what an answer is. I know, I know, you don't believe it. You're, I, haven't, I haven't argued for it yet. I know, just circular reasoning. This is what the Bible says. It is an error. There's no error within it. So if there's ever a point I come to a scripture and I'm like, no, this passage and this passage disagree, the problem is not that they disagree. The problem is I can't fully see how they fit together. That's what we believe about the Bible. The Bible's inspired, the Bible is inerrant, and the Bible is infallible, okay? Infallible means that the Bible is trustworthy and reliable. And at first glance, you might think that infallible and inerrant mean the exact same thing. How does trustworthy and how does being true differ? They're not quite the same thing. They're two sides to the same coin. Let me kind of describe it for you real fast, okay? So we have a passage in the Bible that says, Jesus, Jesus says, uh, I'm going and I'm preparing a place for you, okay? Inerrancy means... Jesus actually said that. Infallible means Jesus is actually doing that. Okay? That's the difference. Inerrancy, it's true. It's true. Every single thing that we recorded here actually happened. It's true. But it's also trustworthy. Every single thing that God says in his word will also become, come to fruition. It is trustworthy. Okay? There's a great verse for this. It's Isaiah 55. 10 and 11 says, for just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word that comes from my mouth 
will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. This text affirms for us that God's will accomplishes everything for which it was sent forth. Everything. And this is why we believe the scripture is infallible. Okay? So the three eyes, three eyes of the Bible. The Bible is inspired, inerrant, and infallible. Now, guys, those are just three terms that most, theologi- most theologians and most scholars will use when they're talking about the Bible. If you want like a full, in-depth, what does proclamation believe about the Bible, go to our website. I would read it, but we really don't have time. I've got I to get through a lot more, okay? So I would read it. So go to our website. Go to the About Us tab. On the, bo- the third tab there, it says what we believe, and scroll down, and we have a whole section on what we believe about every little thing, okay? And the Bible's one of them. It's a full statement. You can read it. It's great. I wrote it. It's wonderful. So, the Bible is inspired, the Bible is inerrant, and the Bible is infallible. This was never challenged in the course of history until the Age of Enlightenment. It was almost universally accepted until we get to the Age of Enlightenment, which is great. The Age of Enlightenment was, was, was wonderful. A lot of great things came out of it. But one of the bad things that came out of it was where the Scripture and God were replaced by man and his reason. Right? The problem with that is, is it denies the very thing we've been talking about, that we are fallen individuals who are incapable of perfect reasoning. You believe this already. I don't actually have to tell you this. If I got an astrophysicist in here to describe how a black hole works, most of us would just go ahead and say, I'm not going to understand this. He might. Probably, he probably couldn't tell you how a car engine works, but he's got a, a, a thing about black holes. He knows, Right? We all have a limit to our reason. We all have a limit to our ability to know and to have knowledge. For us to ascribe the Bible being inspired and and infallible means that we must confess from the get-go that I will not be able to understand everything fully. There will be passages in the Bible that I will confuse me and I won't get. There will be doctrines in the Bible that will seem confusing and I won't get. I won't understand them. But our, but our view of Scripture means that when I don't understand these things, my approach is not, then I, I disregard the Bible. My approach is, Lord, help me. Help me to see. Lord, help me understand. So that's what we believe about the Bible. Now, I want to address two questions, right? There's two questions that get tossed around a lot. If you've never heard these questions, this is going to be super helpful for you. Uh, I hope it's going to give you some good, some good understanding of some things that people do talk about when it comes to the Bible. Number one, we talked about it earlier. How do we know that the Bible that you hold in your hand is an accurate representation of the original manuscript? Remember our definition of of inspiration went all the way back to the autographs? So the question we have to ask ourselves then is, how do we know that that is accurate? It may not surprise you that we don't have the original autographs. And now you think, aha, see Kevin, I got you. There it is. You can't, I, the original autographs can't prove you wrong because Noah ha, no one has them. How convenient. Let's, let's talk about it for just a moment. There is some really great evidence for why we can believe that the words you have in your Bible are the words that were actually written down. It's incredible. So one of the reasons why most people believe about the Old Testament that it not, it not being completely accurate is because Israel, being an ancient Near Eastern culture, mostly passed down their history verbally which is true. From family to family and person to person, as their, as their lineage went on, they would tell their history to each other. But that doesn't mean that history, that Israel as a nation never wrote down their history. 
right? We obviously know that they did. There's two classic places in the Bible that we can look at where we see that we, that we have where they read out from the book of the law, showing that they did have a written history. In 2 Kings, in, the, in chapter 22, we have this spot where Josiah is having the temple rebuilt. I'm not going to quote it because it's kind of long, but it is up there. There it is. 2 Kings chapter 22, we have this spot where Josiah is having the, the temple rebuilt. He sends people to go down into the treasury to get the silver to pay the workers. And while they're there, lo and behold, what do they find? Some weird-looking scrolls. And they open it up, and they find out, oh, this is the book of the law. This is what Moses wrote. So it makes its way all the way to Josiah, who then reads it, and in a, in a moment of repentance, and a moment of, of weeping, he, re- he just tears his clothes in half in mourning because he realizes how far the nation of Israel has come. They're no longer following God's law. Okay? Now, this is an example where they literally had the book of Moses. They had the law written. Same thing happens later on, 100 years later, in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 8, after the wall has been rebuilt, Ezra stands up before the, all the people, and he opens up the book of the law, and he explains and writes down the book of the law. Or he actually, I'm sorry, he reads the book of the law while people make their way through the crowd, explaining it to the audience. Here again is another instance where we know that although their, most of their history would have been passed down family to family like that, as a nation, they did have written, it, written histories. It just wasn't just oral, okay? So the idea that we can't we just discredit the Old Testament because it's all an oral tradition, not true, okay? But let's take it a step further. In 1947, the earliest, by 1947, the earliest manuscripts that we had of the Old Testament came from the 10th century, around 920 AD, okay? That's a big gap. That means that 920, the earliest manuscript we had of the Old Testament was, is about 1,500, 1,600 years after the events of the Old Testament. That's a big gap. It seems like a lot. So what happened in 1947? You probably have heard about it. If you've not, I'm going to tell you about it right now. The Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Has anybody, have, you ever heard, have you heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Okay, you know, you guys. What happened is in, in, in Wadi Qumran, there, is, there are the 11 caves that kind of overlook the Dead Sea. And inside of these 11 caves, here's what they found. Let's talk about this for a moment. They found 1,000 full manuscripts and over 25,000 fragments of manuscripts. This collection contained every single book from the Old Testament with the exception of Esther. Okay? So we have lots and lots of manuscripts now of the Old Testament. Here's why this is incredible. Because the oldest manuscript now that they find at Qumran dates to the year 125 B.C. It moved up our earliest manuscript a millennium, a thousand years in this one discovery. Now, here's what's even better. When they look at it, that copy from 125 B.C. matches the one from 920 A.D. to 99.6% accuracy. Should have said amen right there. Let me say it again. 99.6% accuracy. Thank you. Oh, there we go, Trevor. I appreciate that. It was unprompted and everything. Ooh, that was so good. Guys, a millennium. If we lined up everybody in here right now and you just tried to pass one sentence from person to person, it would be completely different by the time I got here. And in the course of over a thousand years, the Bible never changed. It's incredible. It's incredible the fact that we know 
that what we have in your hand is the historical word written by Israel and completely accurate. Guys, that is that means you can read your Bible and trust it, right? Okay, that's just the Old Testament. Let's get to the New Testament. Can we trust the New Testament, okay? Yes, we can. Here's why. There are over 5,800 complete manuscripts, I'm sorry, 5,800 complete or fragments of Greek manuscripts. We have over 10,000 Latin manuscripts, and we have over 9,300 manuscripts in other languages. Guys, if you add that, up, that number up, that means we have close to 25,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. That is a lot, and it's super helpful for reasons we'll get to in just a moment. But you, I can see that you're not stunned. So let, so let me give you some comparison for just a moment, okay? When we talk about this, when you talk about this and we compare it to other ancient works around the same time period, okay, of Julius Caesar's Gaelic Wars, we have 10 manuscripts. Of Aristotle's Poetics, we have approximately five manuscripts. Of everything that Herodotus wrote, we have less than 10 manuscripts. The only book that comes close is the Iliad by Homer, of which we have close to 300. 25,000 manuscripts. And the closest one in the ancient Near Eastern world that can even get close is the Iliad with 300 of them. Guys, the evidence for the amount of the New Testament and its accuracy is beyond comparison. Now, again, we don't have the original autograph, so I know what you're thinking. How, there you go. There's your argument. You don't have the originals. The earliest manuscript that we have of the New Testament comes from around 120, 125 AD. So now we've, we've shortened that gap from the Old Testament, right? We're down to five, six decades, which is pretty good, okay? But there's still a time period in so a lot of people will look and they say, uh-huh, five or six decades, that's just enough time for the disciples to dig up everything, change it all, and rewrite it all, recirculate it to the entire church, the entire world, and have everything. They've gathered up all these manuscripts and they've adjusted all of them. And nobody knew, right? They were able to steal everything, rewrite all of it, and put it all back where it came from without anybody even knowing, right? Maybe you hold to that opinion, okay? But let's compare it again to some of these other works. Of Julius Caesar's writings, the earliest one we have dates 900 years after his composition. Of Aristotle's writings, we have, it dates 1,400 years after its composition. And of the Iliad, the one that came the closest in manuscript count, the earliest copy we have is two millennium after its composition. Guys, the evidence is not even close. And here's the thing. This is what people do. They're like, aha, there's this, gap, there's this gap in the Bible. Therefore, this is how we know it's not true. But they never say that about Herodotus. They never say that about Julius Caesar or the Gal and the Gaelic Wars, right? It's just what I, when I talk about when I, earlier when I said that people make up their mind and they look for evidence to support it, this is what it is. If you look at any other thing in comparison to it, it by far has more evidence than any other book yet that we'll readily accept, but for somehow we're just going to disagree that the Bible is true. It makes no sense, okay? So here's the great thing. When you have that many thousands of copies, it makes it really easy to figure out which one's wrong. It makes it really easy to figure out when that monk wrote no versus on, or wrote on versus no. Why? Because it doesn't match the other 25,000. We have all of these manuscripts, and this one doesn't match up. It makes it easier for us to figure this out. 
Historians and Bible scholars, Geisler and Nix, they say that we have the New Testament has a 99.5% accuracy rate, which is way better than any other well-known ancient work. Guys, the accuracy of the New Testament and it actually telling you what it says and it being original to, to, the, to the manuscript, the evidence that we have blows everything else out of the water as far as it being accurate. Guys, the words that you have in your Bible are the words, the exact words written, not exact because it goes through translation, right? But not, you're not, you, don't, you probably don't have it in Hebrew and Greek, but they're the exact words that the authors wrote down. And when we say that the Bible is inspired, what I mean is that when you open that Bible up and you read it, that is the exact same thing as you sitting down with a cup of coffee and talking to God and him speaking to you. That's what that means, that the word is inspired. Now, one more question. I know I'm short on time, so I'm going to go through this a little bit. And this one, I could go on a long time because I wrote my thesis on this one, okay? So the question is, why do, okay, so we talk about the manuscripts. Now we know we, it, it's pretty authoritative. It's accurate to all the, the originals. Why do we have certain books of the Bible and not others? Okay, maybe you've heard people ask that question. What about the Apocrypha, which our, our Catholic brethren will inc- include some of those books in, the, in their Bible? And what about the Gospel of Peter or the Gospel of Judas, and why are those not in the New Testament? Okay, so as quickly as I possibly can, I'm going to address this because I am a little over time. But don't look at your watch, please. Okay. So in the Old Testament, right, we have some pretty good evidence for only taking what we have. Number one, it's pretty easy. Christianity is not a replacement of Judaism, right? But we believe that we worship the same God as the Jews. So then if that's the case, we probably should accept the Jewish Bible as they have it. And that's what they have. That makes sense to me, right? They don't have the Apocrypha. They don't include it. Then why would I? Because if they deem these to be authoritative and holy the way that God has moved in their nation, then okay, that's what I'm going to accept, okay? But there's other evidence as well, okay? We can look at quotations of Jesus throughout the New Testament, where Jesus quotes the Old Testament, he calls it divine, he calls it inspired, he gives it meaning, okay, all of these things. But if you also look later on in Luke, Luke chapter 24, verse 27, it says, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. And in verse 44, that same chapter, he says, he told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That quote right there gives us the tripartite division of the Old Testament that you see when we talk about the law, the prophets, and the writings. So Jesus holds that the law, the prophets, and the writings are scripture. He does not include the apocrypha in there. Okay? We can take that one step further and we can talk about the New Testament's quotation of the Old Testament. The New Testament quotes the Old Testament 238 times. And every single one of those times, except for two, come from those books that we have in the Old Testament. None from the Apocrypha. Okay? The Jude is so weird. And he decided, he has one verse where he quotes from a book called The Assumption of Moses, and he has another verse where he quotes from a book called The Book of Enoch. Okay? So why Jude did that, I don't know, but he did. Uh, well, later on we'll see that's the, some, when they talk about the New Testament and the canon of the New Testament, that was a lot of struggle that people had with the book of Jude because it had these quotations to books that, that were not considered Old Testament canonical scriptures, okay? So this is the reason why we take the Old Testament. Now, there's more evidence I could give you, 
Okay, but I'm hoping that two basic pieces of evidence will, will suffice for this is why we believe in the Old Testament books being closed. There's no quotation of the New Testament ever quoting the Apocrypha, and there's no quote from Jesus ever quoting anything from the Apocrypha, and we see ourselves as, a, as, as worshiping the same God that the Jews worshiped in the Old Testament, therefore we accept their Bible as authoritative and, and canon. Okay? We're not going to add anything to it. We'll take anything away from it. That gets us to the New Testament, though. Most people have questions about the New Testament, right? Why do we have the books we have in the New Testament? And why are there not others? Okay, well, the first thing I'm going to say is there becomes a need, there arises this need in the early church to really quickly define which books are canonical and which ones are not. And when I say canonical, I mean books that are the, they, they, they teach according to what Christ has handed down to the church. And we'll get into that in just a minute, okay? There becomes this need, and the reason that need arises is because of a guy named Marcion. Marcion is an early church heretic. This is, this is what I wrote my thesis on, okay? Marcion was an early church heretic, okay? And what he does is he, he's like, hmm, I'm going to be a spiritual leader. And he takes the Bible, and he goes, but I only like this book. He takes, one, he takes the Gospel of Luke, and he takes 10 of Paul's letters, and then mutilates them. He takes out all these passages that refer to the Old Testament and everything like that. He rejects the entire Old Testament. He rejects every New Testament book that, that even talks favorably about the Old Testament, and he comes up and says, aha, Christianity. And the, and the early church is like, no, you can't do that. That's not the way this works. That's not how any of this works. You can't just start making stuff up, right? So all of a sudden, the church has a need to figure out, wait, what books are authoritative and which ones are not, okay? So that's how this arises. So they come up with a test, a quick test. Now, you can read about some of this in John chapter 17. We don't have time. Go read the whole chapter. It's called the high priestly prayer, okay? It's what's referred to. In this chapter of John chapter 17, Jesus is praying to God. And what he says is, God, the message that you have given to me I have now given to the apostles, right? And because I gave this message to them, they now have believed in me in the, in the way that you sent me to them. So now I'm sending them to the world with this same message so that those who hear might also believe in me, okay? Now, that's a, let me talk about what just happened. Jesus says there is a certain message given from God the Father to Christ from Christ to the apostles. That message is the correct interpretation of the Old Testament. Well, how do I know that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament? Jesus is not the only one who had that. We can look at later, earlier, where you see Anna and Simeon and with the baby Jesus, and they come and they confess him as the Messiah before anything. They, they have been reading the Old Testament correctly. So what Jesus teaches the apostles is, Here's how you can understand the Old Testament, and here's everything that it says about me, which we just saw he did again in Luke chapter 24. So it's not, it's not a surprise to us. So we have this message, this what's called the rule of faith or a tradition of teaching, okay? So what happens then is the early church says, all right, for us to figure out which books should be in the New Testament, number one, it has to be in line with this doctrine of faith that we receive from Christ himself. This is why the early church, most of the church leaders are apostles or they're people who had direct, a direct relation to the apostles. They were taught by them because they had been taught the faith and then told to maintain that faith in their church. Okay? So there was a tradition of teaching. Matter of fact, there are two books in the early church that talk about this. Irenaeus wrote one called The Demonstration of the Apostolic Preaching and there's a book called The Didache. And both of these describe the tradition or the rule of faith 
the teaching given from Christ to the apostles. So for a book to be in the New Testament, it number one, it had to line up and be according to this rule of faith. And then there were two other criteria. Number one was apostolicity. Okay, it had to be written by an apostle. Does the writing have an apostle for its author? Now, I know what you just thought. You just thought of Hebrews, and you're like, ah, this doesn't fit in here. I agree. We don't, we don't, no, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. We do have a, a, weird, quote, a weird quote from Clement of, uh, Clement of Rome who thinks that Paul wrote Hebrews in, or he wrote Hebrews in Hebrew to the Drew, Jews, and then Luke then translated it into Greek. But that's far from authoritative, right? It's just the other thing we have. Um, so apostolicity and the next one was antiquity. Has the church historically recognized the voice of God speaking to his people in this writing? The biggest misconception about the New Testament and how it was formed is that four or five guys got into a darkly lit room and in secret decided, here's what's going to be in the Bible and this, oh, ha, ha, you know, this, this other letter of Paul, no, not going to make it in here. We don't like you, Paul, right? No, they don't do that. What you have is you have a few bishops who help set up this criteria, and then what they do is the church around the world begins to come together to say, no, 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 here's, what, here's the Bibles that we're preaching from, and here's the one that we're preaching from. Do these books line up? Here's the books that we're preaching, okay? And that's how they begin to develop what the canon is, using this criteria and then talking to other churches in the known world to determine where does this come from, okay? Now, the very first list that we have of the canon of the New Testament is from 170 AD. And get this, it includes every single book that you have in the Bible right now as an accepted book, except for five. And that was a lot. It's a kind of a lot. But I'll, let, me, let, me explain, let me explain. There's also on that same list, there's also a book of, uh, there's a list of rejected books, and none of those five also make it on that list. These books, just, they just have questions over. Okay? Let me tell you what the five books are Hebrews, which we just discussed why. Uh, first and Second Peter. Now, the reason First and Second Peter are kind of held without is because all of a sudden there's a lot of writings that are coming from Peter, which actually are not coming from Peter. That's the point. They're saying, oh, there's all these things that are being written that people are claiming that Peter wrote them, but he didn't. So the church is taking time to consult with Peter to find out, whoa, 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 did you read? Did you write these or not? Right. So that's how they come up with First and Second Peter. Okay. The Book of James is not on the list. Again, same kind of question as you look at Hebrews. There's questions over which James, because it says James, the brother of Jesus, but they're like, oh, wait, we need to confirm. We've got to confirm that this is James, the actual one who's saying this, is, 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 is the one who wrote it, okay? And then the other book was Jude, which we know why, because Jude, that scoundrel, sneaking some stuff in there. So guys, this is why the canon becomes formed. It, the, the, the heresy necessitated coming up with a reason for why we believe, what books are going to be authoritative. And then heresy necessitated the closing of the canon. Why have there been, there been no other books ever added? Because of Montanism. Another heresy shows up that begins to add more books into the Bible, and the church has to again to come back and say, no, these books are not canon, and we need to close it so that for all of history, we can protect the Bible from any other heresy trying to be added into it. So the canon becomes closed, and from that point forward, no book has ever been added to the Bible, right? Oftentimes, this whole thing gets sold to you as some conspiracy in a dark room when it's far from the truth. Guys, that's a lot. I just threw a whole heck of a lot at you, okay? My goal today was that if you're a believer, 
I want you to know that you can trust your Bible. That you can go tomorrow morning, you can open it up, and you can hear God speak to you. But I also want you to know that there's really good evidence for you to think that. As we come to the end of deconstruction, I promise you, you may have had questions that didn't get answered. You may have questions about this that didn't get answered. All this kind of stuff. What, I, what I'm hoping that you take from this is that the Bible can be your guide if you allow it. If for a moment you will doubt your doubts. Faith is when the unexplained meets the undeniable. When the unexplained meets the undeniable. We have enough scripture and enough proof of it to say that it's undeniable. So when I come to that, if I have things that I don't understand, I can have faith enough to believe that there's a good answer. I just don't know it yet. Guys, would you stand? I'm going to go ahead and pray us out of here. Uh, we went a little over time. I don't really know what time it is. My phone's down there. But I want to pray us out. Uh, real quick, next week, uh, we have one service next week. It's a worship and prayer service, and it's going to be at 945, okay? So the two services, 9 and 1045, just 945. One service next week, you can come to that. Also, if you didn't get a chance to sign that, sign that, to scan that QR code for Serve 615, you can still sign up through the website. Go to the events tab. On the events tab, you'll see a Surf 615 sign up, and you can sign up there, okay? Love you guys. Let me pray. We'll send you out. God, you are good. Uh, and what we've seen today, God, is that you have worked throughout the course of history to preserve a, a, your word so that today in 2023, as we sit down, we can see and we can know and, and, and know trustworthy that you have kept this for us and you've, you've made it for us, that we can look to it and know all things for our faith and we can follow Christ and you've taught us in this. God, we thank you for the, the way you've preserved scripture over time. We're thankful for your son Christ and his explaining scripture to us and handing the message down. Father, we pray that in all of these things that Christ is glorified and it's in his name we pray, amen. Fam, thank you guys. We'll see you all next week, 945. Go and proclaim.